Hello, podcast listeners and opera fans. This is Jonathan Dean, your host for this Seattle Opera VoiceWise podcast celebrating sopranos of all kinds. Let's face it, sopranos are where it's at. But there are a million different kinds of soprano and lots of confusing terminology in any number of languages. Let's not worry too much about jargon. This podcast is organized as a grand tour of the land of soprano, with lots of examples from years of favorite performances at Seattle Opera. We'll start with flashy, acrobatic voices that can hit a million notes very quickly and proceed soprano by soprano to the ones who seem to have swallowed lasers, those sopranos who can blast a hole in the ceiling of the theater with their voice. Some people are built for speed and agility, others for strength and power, and voices have the same variety. What's important is that every performer identify and exploit her strengths while continuing to develop a wide range of skills. Starting up at the tippy top, we find sopranos who love turning cartwheels up on the roof. There is one important technical term here, and that's coloratura. That refers to a type of vocal line, one with loads of ornaments, running up and down scales, trills, big leaps, all sorts of vocal fireworks. Any voice type can sing coloratura, basses and baritones, just the same as sopranos. But soprano coloratura tends to be more impressive just because it's so high. Thus we get our first kind of soprano, the coloratura. singing a riff from the Queen of the Night's Fierce Vengeance aria from Mozart's Magic Flute. Seaton is an extraordinary coloratura, world-renowned, who's also an important voice teacher here in the Pacific Northwest. Curious thing about that aria, either you can sing it or you can't. If you're lucky enough to have that skill, the Queen of the Night is not really that hard to do. There are plenty of soprano roles which are longer, fancier, and more challenging. Let's listen to another great soprano, Joan Sutherland, who sang in Seattle and in Vancouver many times in her amazing career. Her voice could also flow like a powerful river, but here she quite literally tinkles and twinkles as she describes the magic bell used by a young woman to save a handsome prince from a pack of wild beasts. Thank you. 
Joan Sutherland singing the bell song from the opera Lacme by Leo de Lieb, her Seattle opera debut back in 1967. Coloratura singing has been part of opera since the very beginning. It's one of the basic tricks a trained voice can do, and most singers consider good coloratura technique part of basic vocal fitness, something along the lines of good cardiovascular health. You might hear coloratura from any kind of character in any kind of situation, hero or heroine, sidekick or villain, comedy or tragedy. That said, sopranos tend to play more serious roles than they do comedic ones. As a tip of the hat to one of my favorite funny ladies, let me play you a bit of Sarah Coburn in the coloratura role of Zerbinetta from Strauss's Ariadne of Naxos. You'll hear the audience laughing every time she takes a breath. They're laughing at the stage action. I think Sarah was flirting with and even tickling various guys on stage when she sang this passage. But it was the delicious sound she made that gave the audience all that joy. of soprano comedy, and after that I promise to get serious. Listen to Sally Wolf, one of those really spectacular sopranos who can do it all. She was unbelievable in serious coloratura soprano roles, such as Norma or Lucia di Lammermoor. But Sally also joined us for a lot of silly Rossini comedies, which usually star a mezzo-soprano as the female lead. You still need a top-notch soprano for those operas because the many ensembles require a great soprano voice way up top hitting the high notes. Sopranos in ensembles are a bit like violins. That is, in a symphony orchestra, the violin usually plays the tune because it's easy for our ears to pick out the highest note. Listen to the first act finale from The Barber of Seville, Rossini's great comedy, starring the incomparable mezzo Kate Lindsay as Rosina, the heroine. The glorious voice of Sally Wolf, playing Berta the Maid, rides high above all the racket, all the way up to her thrilling soprano high C. Just a little bit of 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 a little b
Amatura singing means a character is excited, that a situation is intense. But story-wise, it's not specific. It's up to the composer to deploy coloratura in the service of the drama. Verdi, for instance, puts coloratura to extraordinary dramatic effect in the aria that closes the first act of La Traviata, Sempre Libera. Violetta Valerie is a party girl and high-class prostitute. She's just received a deeply romantic declaration of love from a sweet, naive young man. Terrified by the possibility of real love, Violetta rejects him and, in her aria, vows to party until she drops dead of it. Verdi writes nervous coloratura to describe the manic, hedonistic lifestyle which she's afraid to leave. But he also interrupts her with the tenor offstage, still singing his lyric aria about the power of true love. Listen to how Violetta fights him, tooth and nail, with her coloratura. Our soprano here is Dana Punt, who made a splash with this aria at the Viva Verdi concert we presented in honor of Verdi's Bicentennial. If a soprano isn't singing coloratura, what's she doing? As you've heard, coloratura involves moving the voice very quickly, dashing up and down and doing this high wire act. It's more or less the opposite of the kind of singing you're generally asked to do in folk music, which moves slowly or step by step. Here's a famous tune that's almost the opposite of coloratura, a slow procession down a scale. It's Musetta's Waltz from Puccini's La Boheme. And the dramatic trick here is this song is insincere. It's just for show. Musetta is a flirtatious coquette whose natural sound should be the coloratura of Cerpinetta or Violetta. She sings this more folksy melody to annoy her ex-boyfriend Marcello, who's sitting at the next table there at the cafe, pretending not to see her.
end, Marcello gives in by bellowing the tune of Musetta's Waltz himself, while she ornaments his melody with all sorts of coloratura high notes. Baritone Michael Todd Simpson as Marcello submits here to soprano Jennifer Zetlin as Musetta. There's a lot of competition among sopranos, particularly for roles like Musetto, which aren't so extreme in terms of their vocal requirements. Opera producers have their pick of women with lovely light soprano voices who are also full of vibrant personality. In some cases, her personality plays a major role in the performance. With many Mozart soprano characters, for instance, the challenge isn't so much singing the notes as enacting the character in all her complexity. Here's an example, Susanna, Figaro's bride in The Marriage of Figaro. She sings the simplest, most natural love song in the fourth act, Out at Midnight in the Garden, but it's the world's most ludicrously complex and richly human situation. Figaro is hiding in the bushes, eavesdropping, afraid that Susanna means to betray him with the man she really loves, Figaro's boss. Susanna knows he's there, she's offended by his suspicion, and she starts the aria intending to torment him with jealousy. But about halfway through, the great Susannas realize this is also her one opportunity to sing a love song to the man she loves on her wedding night, so the aria shifts from false to sincere. To sing Mozart's almost perfect music properly, you have to simplify, simplify, simplify. But for the drama, you must juggle many complicated layers of psychology. Here's another of Seattle's favorite sopranos, the one and only Nuccia Focile, presenting us with the simultaneously simple and complex nature of love. moving away now from those sparkly coloratura acrobats to the sound of more sincere, sensuous soprano singing, 
Let's listen now to the haunting soprano melody that sets the scene at the start of a great masterpiece. The intense heat is rising from the pavement outside a crumbling tenement in Charleston, South Carolina. Evening is coming on, the men are coming home from work, and young mother Clara sings a lullaby to her baby, reassuring the child that it's summertime and the living is easy. This performance was the Seattle debut of Angel Blue. lullaby, we are now in the world of the lyric soprano, who sustains her voluptuous voice through longer, slower melodies than those fluttering coloraturas. Let's head back now to the age of Handel, who gave us plenty of fantastic soprano roles in his many operas. Julius Caesar is probably Handel's best-known opera today, maybe because of the gorgeous and complex soprano role of Cleopatra. We'll hear French-Canadian soprano Alexandra de Shorties sing a bit of Cleopatra's aria, Piangero. At this point in the story, we think Caesar and Cleopatra have been defeated by Cleopatra's wicked little brother, and our rapidly maturing teenage heroine laments her sorry fate with wondrous dignity.
Dignity and grandeur are the name of the game as we move into more serious soprano repertoire. One of the greatest sopranos ever to grace the stage of Seattle opera was Renee Fleming, who sang her first Rusalka in Seattle, a role that later became her calling card. Rusalka is a bashful teenager who's too shy to address her prince directly, so she sings her unbelievably gorgeous love song to the moon instead. As orchestras got bigger and bigger, so the lush, rich sound of the lyric soprano kept growing. Sometimes you'll hear the term spinto, which means pushed in Italian. Now, you should never push your voice. That's a good way to injure yourself. A better way to understand it is to think of a singer developing an edge to her voice, not to push, but to cut through the wall of orchestral sound. Here, for instance, is a lyric soprano, the great Sherry Greenwald, who found a way to focus her voice so it could pierce through the massive orchestral explosion when Madame Butterfly finally sights Pinkerton's ship in Nagasaki Harbor. We've listened now to lots of different types of sopranos, and we still have a couple more to go, but I want to pause for a moment and investigate something that's really important, and that's the quality of a voice, the timbre or color. In other words, not just what type of soprano is it, which is another way of asking, what is this voice good at doing? Instead, let's ask, who is that? 
What's the personality of the voice? The unique individual fingerprint that makes it different from every other soprano who ever sang that music. We have to address this question because here's where opera starts getting really interesting. This is the element of the art form that turns sensible people into obsessive opera fans. It's a bit like enjoying wine. Appreciating the difference between a Sauvignon Blanc and a Chardonnay, for instance, might be like appreciating the difference between a high-color Tura Soprano and a Lyric Soprano. But think how many different Chardonnays there are. Some you love, others one taste is enough. And different people react differently to the same wine. Voices work the same way. We're going to do a little vocal wine tasting. Here are three fantastic lyric sopranos, all singing the same music. It's an aria from the fourth act of Verdi's Il Trovatore. The role of Leonora is a testing ground for ambitious sopranos. It demands vast range, coloratura finesse, endless reserves of breath for long melodies, and also heroic power to dominate noisy ensembles. She battles a fearsome mezzo, a heroic tenor, and a mighty baritone for the audience's love. And the trick is, Leonora must caress the hair on the backs of our necks up in the second balcony with floated pianissimo high notes if she's going to win that love. We'll compare these sopranos singing phrases from the loving prayer D'Amor Sulali Rosé. Let's start with the unmistakable voice of Carol Vanessa. My old boss, Spate Jenkins, described this as a three-in-the-morning voice, meaning if you woke him up at three in the morning and played a little bit of a recording, he'd go, oh, that's Carol. That couldn't possibly be anyone other than Carol. Her voice is that distinctive. Here's the next phrase sung by Lisa Deltris, another extraordinary singer who's given us many wonderful performances.
And for the repeat and extension, let's listen to one of Seattle's favorite sopranos, Mary Elizabeth Williams. She shared the role of Leonora with Lisa Delteris the last time we gave Il Trovatore. Makes you a little lightheaded listening to those amazing sounds. That's another reason enjoying great voices is like enjoying wine. Some voices are like wine. Others are more like stronger beverages. Those of you who enjoy a swig of spirits may find yourself drawn to the sound of the dramatic soprano. Those are the ones whose voices pierce through even the thickest orchestration, whose high notes grab us at the base of the spine and shoot all the way up like electricity. The characters they play tend to be fanatics. In Italian opera, perhaps the most fearsome of all dramatic soprano roles is the ice princess Turandote. She's the most beautiful woman in the world, but she loathes men so much the road approaching her palace is decorated with spikes, each bearing the severed head of some man who fell in love with her. In her great entrance aria, In Questa Regia, she explains her mission— to avenge the wrongs done to the female gender throughout history by men. It's easy to make this character sound harsh. If you can sing the music beautifully and still project the warmth of your voice, you are a great turndote. Here is Marcy Stonikis.
that's the biggest, most powerful kind of soprano voice, one that can cut through anything and touch not just your ears, but your entire body. There's a lot of work for these ladies in German opera. It started with Beethoven, who didn't really understand the difference between human voices and orchestral instruments. But there were sopranos who rose to the challenge of singing what Beethoven wrote. Richard Wagner heard them and then wrote them roles which exploited that new sound, but which were also performable by human beings. In the German tradition, Richard Strauss picked up where Wagner left off. Let's listen to a wild duet for two formidable soprano voices, the conclusion to Strauss's opera Electra, Fanatic Central. Here, the two sisters from the most messed up family in ancient Greece exult that their brother has finally avenged their father's murder by killing their mother and her lover. Janice Baird and Ermgard Filsmeyer as Electra and Chrysotemis, not music for the faint of heart. When they asked Birgit Nilsson, the great dramatic soprano, what it took to sing these roles, her very practical answer was, sensible shoes. According to Nilsson, either you can sing like that or you can't. If not, no amount of effort or study is going to make it possible for you. But if you can do it, wear sensible shoes, because these operas aren't short, and the soprano is standing on stage for a long time. Wagner's operas, in particular, are feats of stamina for singers and orchestra. When they're done well, the audience just loves them. We'll close this podcast with another dramatic soprano, Isolde, from Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. When we first meet Isolde in the opening scene, she's already at the end of her rope a kettle boiling over with a stew of frustration, jealousy, wounded pride, repressed sexual passion, inherited ancient hatreds, and loving instinct. She expresses all these mixed-up emotions in her narrative and curse. And this is the kind of singing I was talking about earlier, where the soprano is shooting death rays with her high notes. Here is Jane Eaglin, who made a spectacular triumph with this role in Seattle in 1998.
I had the great good fortune to hear Eaglin sing this opera ten times that August, and each night the experience was blissful devastation. That's the power of great opera, brought to you through the courtesy of The Soprano Voice. Thanks for listening to our grand tour of the world of sopranos. This is Jonathan Dean for Seattle Opera.